0: This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we take a look at the backstory of Noah and talk about the Midrash surrounding the Nephilim from Genesis 6. So we have a lot going on uh, with these few little paragraphs leading up to the flood narrative. Marty, what uh, can you tell us about this?
1: We do have a lot going on. We even have uh, some stuff we're not even going to get to. I'm really just going to talk about little bits and pieces here. Like there's... When you talk about the Nephilim, there's a whole section of Jewish apocrypha, like the book of Enoch and and a whole bunch of stuff that's even written even a little bit later, like second, third, fourth, fifth century, um, like about the Watchers. If you if you get it on Google and, and start getting into like the Midrash that surrounds the Watchers, you'll be in like a whole nother realm of apocryphal, Midrash it's 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 cool but it's, it's also wild and crazy and really easy to abuse so we're not even going to be in, in the middle of that um we're just going to talk about little little bits and pieces uh here today we're not taking a whole red pill we're just like cutting it in <laughs> half and taking part of the red pill <laughs> that's right and and to play off of that like we it's good to you know talking about the abuse of midrush we need to come back and and cycle back and say you know we are not the experts on midrush uh there is uh, we're probably getting all kinds of things wrong here just brent and i we're getting all kinds of things wrong we're probably applying it incorrectly we probably misunderstand all kinds of things we need to when we talk about the midrush brent and i on the podcast when you learn this stuff and listen to this stuff We need to realize that when we are not ordained rabbis, when we are not capital R rabbis who are not trained in this stuff, we need to not hold this with, like, firm-fisted authority. Like, we need to hold this very loosely with, like, humility. We are simply trying to let the Midrash open our eyes to—I mean, we're going all the way back to session, like, episode zero here, right? Uh, we have been taught in the Western world that we can learn the static truth, that we can fill in the blanks, we can achieve all the answers, and then we teach this with a sense of like resolute, comprehensive authority. And what the Eastern worldview teaches us, the the gift it wants to give us, is to hold all of this with much more open hands, learning how to ask better questions, stop pursuing the answers Stop trying to figure out what to think and start learning how to think. That's why I want to toy with the Midrash. Because I find it helps me deconstruct my Western mind. Now, to even make this point, uh, Brent, this is not the first time we've attempted to record this episode, correct? Right. <laughs> An unprecedented situation in the Bama podcast. In over 200 episodes, we have never pulled the plug on a recording. Like... We have, you know, we've had stuff we've edited out here and there. You've heard the bloopers at the end of the episodes, if you've listened all the way to the end of the episodes. Like, there's all kinds of things that get, but never have we, like, pulled the plug, walked away from the episode, had to do so much more research. Marty was losing his mind. Uh, Brent didn't even intend to corner me with a question, and he did, and I realized I didn't know anything about what I was
0: talking about. It was fantastic. What was that experience like for you, Brent? It was bizarre. I I went on like a two-hour walk after that, just like in this daze. And I came home and I told Maggie, I was like, Maggie, something really weird happened today. I think I broke Marty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and like right as I'm telling her that, you text me like, okay, I've, I've looked into some things. I'm feeling a lot better about this. <laughs> We're going to be okay. And I'm like, oh, man. I was afraid you had broke Marty too.
1: Oh boy, talk about insecurities galore. But that, you know, we actually want to come back to that and make that point like that, that is a part of the process, which actually was really good that I I know for me, really good that I went through that because we're in some tricky waters. That, uh, well, let me use the, let me use me, I, I'll use the term I. I am in tricky waters here. And if I don't hold this really loosely, if i start talking with too much authority as if i understand this better than i do uh, it's a really dangerous place to be like i'm not a rabbi most almost everybody listening to this podcast <laughs> we shouldn't have any rabbis listening to our podcast like all of us listening to this this is this is this is this is something we need to it needs to teach us i, I long to learn how to think i am not the expert that can tell you what to think that is that is just not how How we're going to do this. So, there you go. There's all the disclaimer and setup that we need for this. How much do we know? Not a lot,
0: but some things. And we should maybe acknowledge that we do have some listeners who have done quite a bit of study in the midrash. Oh, goodness. Yes. And, you know, the kind of study that, or the, the kind of time that you have to spend in it to get to any reasonable point of understanding is substantial. But we do have a few listeners who have put in that time so we want to acknowledge that we probably don't have any ordained rabbis listening but we do have people who have have put in some time and so we want to honor that yeah considerable
1: time and they some of those voices even got started like from our podcast like they never even heard about midrash but then they they bounced into it in, in the Baymah discussion and they just kind of kept going and they've spent more dedicated time in that field of study than i have so they're like They're better with the Midrash than I am. And that's beautiful. Like that is, it's just so cool that learning can work like that, that we can grow like that. I'm trying to grow in like a hundred, like literally a hundred different directions. Uh, I'm trying to get wide and not super deep just because of the nature of my job. I'm always trying to like, my funnel is, has a very wide mouth on it at the very top. Like I want to be bringing a lot of things in. Um, which means that I never get to go really as deep as I would love to. And some of you grab something that you really love and you go very deep with it and you're narrow, but you're deep. And that's,
0: that's beautiful. It's a very beautiful thing. And the whole point of Moss sessions one through five was having this broad overview of the narrative of the entire story of God. And so we have that in the bank at this point. And so session six is now we have an opportunity to go deeper in some things that we haven't necessarily gone as deep in before. So you guys are learning along with us as we study this, as we learn this.
1: Absolutely. Uh, first five sessions, I was leaning on my body of work, and now I can't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I have I have drawn everything out of the well that I can, so now I have to actually start doing some more learning uh, in order to keep talking. And, and we're just going to do that. In the open means we're going to make some mistakes. That's just how learning works. So, I'm just going to say that up front. Like, session six is going to be full of all kinds of weird mistakes. And when we catch them, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. Uh, and we're going to try to not let that stop us from diving in. You can't be paralyzed by the fact you're going to get some things wrong. You, you got to keep learning, you got to keep growing. And that's the nature of things. That's how. It works.
0: All right. So let's jump into
1: it. Here we go. Brent, we're going to link in the show notes the episode that is uh, the episode, you know, under that we're questioning here. The episode in question. Episode five, A Misplaced Curse. This was the episode about um, the vineyard. Noah gets out of the ark. He plants the vineyard. He gets drunk on wine. Uh, Ham comes in and sees his father's nakedness. We, we, we said that the Midrash suggested a castration. It does suggest that. I worked hard uh, kind of dismantling some other popular thoughts. And um, so uh, I get a ton of emails about that. Mostly, most of the emails revolving around, okay, I'm tracking with the conversation, but why? Why does HOM castrate Noah? NOAA, uh, which is a great conversation? So we're going to dive into all kinds of midrush, um, some of it that could be connected or is connected, might not be connected. Might be some different, scattered ideas here. But hopefully, by the time we land the plane today, I will have I will have hopefully helped us to see. No matter which direction you're taking with the midrash, what is the big idea that we can walk away with? So, uh, first of all, let's talk about these nephilim. Like I had a lot of people as they're going through session one. Hey, wait a minute. What about those nephilim? You skipped right over.
0: Um, so, Brent, how about you read us Genesis six? 1 through 10. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be a 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Okay,
1: now we, we read this, and part of the question that we have to ask ourselves about the Nephilim is how relevant is this to the Noah story? Um, it is, and, and part of it is just how the story is written. Is Genesis 6, 1 through whatever it is, 7 or whatever, is... Is that portion the end of the genealogy? Is it like capping off what we've read in Genesis 1 through 5? Is it the end of the first part? Or is it the beginning to the second part? Is it the beginning to the flood narrative? Um, Because when you look at that, Brent, do you see where there could be some different breaks as far as... Where does the flood story begin? Does it begin at 6 verse
0: 1, or do you see any other options? Yeah, I mean... So the way the NIV translators interpret it, you have a subtitle at the beginning of chapter six, indicating a a fairly substantial break between whatever came before in chapter five. You have another subtitle in between verses eight and nine. You also have a lot of paragraph breaks in there. And I feel like in the English, at least, verse 11 feels like a substantial break. Right. Yeah, it definitely can sound that way when you read it. Absolutely. And the
1: NIV is kind of like imposing these paragraph breaks in there really um it doesn't necessarily mean that was the case in the hebrew at all
0: yeah there's i mean there are lines in hebrew um but not necessarily paragraphs in the way that we format things today and there's no punctuation there's not even vowels so (laughs) And you ran
1: into something somewhere, Brent, where uh, they were suggesting, tell us about this. I think we mentioned in the Exodus, you can have two Exodus stories, like are there two stories of seven plagues that get put together to make 10 plagues? And you were reading somebody suggesting that you have
0: uh, the same thing going on here. Tell tell me about that. Yes, I was listening to uh, Pete N's podcast, uh, The Bible for Normal People. I think that's the name of his podcast, and he also has a book on that, Uh, but he and um, his friend Jared also wrote Genesis for normal people and he's in the podcast. He basically referenced the book. So I don't have any details on, on what this theory is, but um, we've talked about documentary hypothesis before um, in, in session three. Uh, but the idea that there are multiple authors who compose Genesis and then they were put together at a later time. And so it kind of, I think it, it stems from that idea, but you have, something like Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where you have two different tellings of the same story um, put next to each other, or, you know, the same story, whatever, two different, two different creation stories set side by side, for comparison, versus something like we talked about with the plagues, where you have two different stories of seven plagues that are woven together into a story of 10 plagues. And P. Enns was saying on his podcast that he has this idea that the story of Noah works like that Exodus story, where there are two different stories of the flood that are woven together. And when you look at the documentary hypothesis, you you see that the way they break it out, they have um, the first part of chapter six is, is just one voice, but then from the middle of six through the end of chapter eight you have both the priestly and the Yaoist voices woven together.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and there's actually, if you go, if you go all the way to like say the end of chapter five, all the way through just reading it in the English, there's all kinds of like evidences that you could see once you start looking for it, this could be the case. Now, I'm not sure I, I'm in love with this theory. I would want somebody um, and, and Pete would be, <laughs> I mean, if that's where he's at, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be, you know, kneeling in that direction. But uh, somebody that understands, somebody that's able to look at the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew usage, the Hebrew grammar, um, the the style of Hebrew that's used, are there differences? Do we have evidence for different authors? Those are the people I would, I would lean towards for this. Uh, as far as just what I'm equipped to look at, I don't know if I love the theory, but definitely could be going on here for sure. Now, the thing that makes me, the reason why I, I bring this all up is because if this is a if you're supposed to be roping in the conversation of the Nephilim into the flood narrative, and Jewish midrash and tradition is going to say largely, yes, you should be, um, then that that impacts the story. Now, that's important because there was a verse. Let's see here. Brent, I want you to read a verse again. There was a uh, Genesis 6 verse, uh, let's say here. Uh, give me
0: verse 4. Is it just 4? Yeah, give me verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Okay, so these are the
1: heroes of old, men of renown. And then the other phrase, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. Like, after what, Brent?
0: (laughs) I mean, uh, after the flood, I guess.
1: Right, which they
0: have to be. Where else have we run into the Nephilim, Brent? Where where are we going to run into them after the flood? I believe they come up in... Numbers and maybe in Deuteronomy as well. Okay. Uh, a
1: reference to the the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. You're going to have a whole bunch of uh, the descendants of Anak, who is a descendant of the—they actually reference them, in, I think in Numbers you're referencing the Nephilim. They call them the Nephilim, and it's a reference to which group of people? What is the striking physical attribute of this group of people? Uh, they're very tall giants. They at tall. They are giants, right? And we even have historical evidence. Like I've heard lots of people give apologetic, you know, backing to the fact that there were in that land of Canaan, uh, there's evidence of of definitely uh, more of a giant race than anything that we're even count. Like we have all kinds of uh, physical anomalies in our world where you have those world record people that are eight and a half feet tall in the Guinness Berkeley world records and just different situations in our world. But it seems like there's evidence that that was, there's something more prominent going on. I don't know what those, I'm, I'm not equipped to talk about that and I'm going to stop talking about that, but we do have, yeah. I'm,
0: um, do I need to look up the Guinness world record for tallest person? <laughs> <laughs> you certainly could. That'd be a very, if I can find a link, I'll put that in the show notes. All right. Excellent.
1: Um, But we have, uh, what we have here is we have the Nephilim on Earth before the flood, and we have Nephilim on Earth after the flood, as Genesis 6 tells us right here. They were on the Earth in those days and afterward. What's the problem with that, Brent Billings?
0: Well, they weren't on the ark. And therefore they should have been. I mean, unless they're tall enough to stand above the (laughs) waterline, they they should be wiped out. They're real giants. Yeah, they shouldn't have made it. How did they make it?
1: From the pre and, and obviously you have this explanation here of the sons of God and the daughters of men. You have these angelic beings having sexual relations with human beings, and that explains where you get this giant race from. Almost like in Greek mythology, you have demigods. Like of course you have giants. They're the offspring of angelic and human, you know, uh intercourse. So that's why you have this really weird, odd
0: physical race that's just head and shoulders above everybody else maybe the angel fathers flew down and uh held their children up with their wings while the water was on earth. uh. (laughs) well some there's all kinds of midrash Uh, there's not
1: just one stream of midrash one midrash talks about how the tower of babel had actually had actually begun construction began before the flood and the tower was tall enough that the nephilim who were actually building the tower uh, sat. Uh, they were on top of the tower, and they were high enough that they survived the flood by being atop of the tower of Babel, uh, whose construction was not finished, but it was far enough that they were able to survive. So, I mean, it's all kinds of interesting things about that. We're told in the Bible that the one who kind of, the one who is in, who is historically in, in biblical history, the one who is given credit for kind of driving the. um uh, the con the construction of the kingdom of Babel was biblical uh, uh, trivia. Brent, who was it that was in charge of constructing Babel? Um, everybody. We we only know this because of the conversation that we had that we stopped recording. Who was the great character? The great hunter is your clue. Somebody was a great hunter before God. Nimrod. Nimrod. Who happens to be the grandson of Um? Hum? Can- I think Canaan. If I did, it, if I did it correctly, great grandson of Hum, right? Do I have that right? Uh, well,
0: through Cush, though, not
1: Canaan. Through Cush, not Canaan. Oh, you're right. Yeah, absolutely, you're right. So one of the descendants of Hum, which is a juicy little connection to the Noah story, right? Fantastic. Okay, another midrash says that the Nephilim survive because one of the giants, his name is Og. And if you're like Og, like Og, the king of Bashan from the book of Numbers, some Midrash says yes, the very same Og. Some Midrash doesn't seem to propose they're the same person. In fact, some Midrash actually call him by another name, Hurtali. I don't know if that's how you say it, but H-U-R-T-A-L-Y. Uh, there's a Wikipedia article if you want to link it, Brett. You can re- link that. Og or Hurtali, uh, the Midrash teaches that he actually hitches a ride. He clings to the ark and survives the flood by clinging to the ark. One Midrash has him straddling the ark. He He rides it and actually steers the ark safely through the flood. And Noah and all of his family survive because Og riding on the ark kind of brings it to its resting place at Mount Ararat. The mountains of Ararat, should I say it more appropriately. So all kinds of fun midrash there, because you have to explain how the Nephilim survive the flood. A, it's in the biblical text. And we just don't, again, the midrash teaches us how to think. The midrash teaches us to notice things that are in the text that we typically don't think about or discredit or just arbitrarily explain away. Because the Nephilim were on the land in that time and afterwards. The Bible tells us that. That's not made up jewish folklore the jewish folk, the, the jewish folklore the midrash has to provide the backstory and the explanation but the, it's the bible that tells us that they're on the land before and after let alone indirectly through just the narrative itself here we have the nephilim when they go into the land of canaan how did they survive the flood and so the midrash gives you the backstory but i digress some of this stuff could be connected to the question at hand. What was our question at hand, Brent? Can you remind me? What, was, what does everybody email me about? Why didn't we talk about the Nephilim? Oh, well, that, yeah, but there, there was something else. There's a, there's a question uh, that seems oh, completely disconnected. Ham and Noah and the castration idea. Correct. Why does Ham castrate his father? How about we read the passage just to remind us of the story in the biblical text? Uh, give me Genesis 9, verses 18 and onward.
0: The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers.
1: All right. So why does, and we suggest, you can go back and listen to the episode. We suggested that when he goes in and sees his father's nakedness, the Hebrew there insinuates in the Midrash teaches in Genesis Rabbah that that's castration. Ooh, now I can't remember if that's Genesis Rebar or, or if that's Rambam that says that. Anyway, Midrash teaches that it's castration. So why does Ham castrate his father? Well, some have suggested that Noah did not provide a wife for Ham. And the backstory is there, but I got to be honest with you, Brent. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. This is where I, I got all my wires twisted in the episode that shall not be named. The episode that shall never be published. Um, I, I had all kinds of backstory twisted up here. I could not find this in the mid-rush. I, I, I tried for uh, a couple of days and just could not find this anywhere. I know I've heard it before. I know that, but I can't find it, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time here. But there, it's in the movie, like the movie Noah uh, that we've talked about before um, with uh, Russell Crowe. Um, it, it's in an, an older version of the Noah tale that I saw on TV when I was really little, like – Seven, eight years old, they had a Noah production on television that I remember watching, and and, uh, and that, that was in there too. But this idea that Noah, seeing the depravity of humanity, um, has found his wife, has found wives for his first two sons, but just is afraid that the depravity of humanity is so—that evil is going to live on. He's so concerned about that that he actually doesn't provide a son for harm. And some, I believe I was told, that some gave this Og character, this hitchhiker, this Ark hitchhiker, the person who kind of befriends Hom and gets him to go marry uh, a member of the Nephilim, which explains why Hom's descendants in Canaan, in Canaan, the land of Canaan, have Nephilim in them. The backstory is there. I just couldn't find that actual teaching In the midrash. So is that, that would explain why Ham has this vengeful, how dare you, father, not provide me with a wife to continue my line. I will take and rob you of your ability to continue your line. It's an act of vengeance, vengeance. And so then when Noah wakes up, oh, you've robbed me of my ability. Now, does he curse a son that is not yet born? Or is there a son that's already born? Does, has he already run off and found a wife for himself in
0: that, in that story arc? And here's a question. So Canaan is, if you look at Genesis 10 in the Table of Nations, Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. Correct. And it says, it says in the curse, cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Correct. So he's not just talking about the brothers like Canaan's brothers like we think of it. They're they're using brothers in the kinship term. Yep. Right? Yep. Absolutely. So so that would apply to all the family. Yes. Not not just Hom's sons of Hom's four sons, Canaan to the other three. It's Canaan to all of the kin.
1: Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And that that. I mean, that would make a ton of sense based on the – it would also be like, okay, that means the other brothers have to be born first. And so how does Noah curse – not even just is one son alive, are four sons alive? I had somebody write me the other day, a Bay Bema listener, um, that had friends that run a vineyard. And he said, hey, I'm just curious. I'm studying the story of Noah. How long would it take if you wanted to plant a vineyard, grow, have the vineyard develop like – mature enough to grow grapes that you could then actually harvest, produce wine that then you could drink enough to get drunk on. How long would that whole process take? And the vineyard owner said about four to five years. So we always picture this like the Noah comes to rest. They come out. They have a bunch of sacrifice. Noah immediately plants like a magical vineyard and gets drunk like the, the next week or something like we, we have such a hard time putting this narrative in any sense of historical like, what is the space? How much time is elapsing here? It could absolutely be years before there could absolutely be multiple sons here of Ham that Noah is able to curse. Yeah, it's absolutely doable. Um, let's step out of the midrash for a moment because textual criticism, not midrash. This is not Jewish tradition. This is scholarship. This is textual critics. This is this is just scholars looking at the text. Not through the lens of tradition, just through the lens of history, archaeology, um, the things that we know about ancient Near Eastern literature. They have suggested that Homs sleeps with his mother. Uh, Obviously, it's very popular within Christian thought. I had people write me a lot of emails about that. Hey, couldn't this be it? I tried to kind of deal with it in that episode, in episode five, A Misplaced Curse. I tried to... Kind of dispel that. Just because it's not Jewish tradition, it's a textual. There's a lot of evidence from a textual criticism point of view, but that's not what Jews have seen for two thousand years and beyond. As they've looked at the story, as they've wrestled with the story, that's not what they're seeing. That's not where they're going with their commentary. And so, therefore, as somebody who's wanting to learn the Jewish perspective on the text. I tend not to go there either. I want to go where Jewish tradition goes. I want to see what they're seeing. I want to learn not what to think, but I want to learn how to think. That's what that's that's the gift that the Midrash can give me. Um is to teach me how to think. It's a very effective commentary. So let's go back to the Midrash. Because there's one Midrash in Genesis Rabbah that does teach uh, that that Noah and his sons had to get up very early every every morning to feed the animals. One of the animals that they had to feed, obviously, were the lions. Noah fed the lions every morning, according to this Midrash. And one morning he was late, and this lion was quite angry that Noah was late to feed him. And so in a rage, he reached out and swiped at Noah and and mangled Noah's genitals, Um, made it so that he could not procreate. He tried to... Uh, have relations with his his wife later in the story and his his genitalia were just so mangled, I'm not trying to be crude, um, but that's the story of the Midrash, uh, that he, uh, the seed went all over, uh, he could not, um, he could not seal the deal. Uh, <laughs> what am I trying to say in a articulate way here on the podcast? I think everybody tries, I think everybody's following what I'm trying to say. I think so. <laughs> I'm working really hard here. Um. So so Noah's not able to procreate. And so what that implies is that when Ham goes in, let's say you're like, let's say that you don't like this whole castration bit. Okay, well, Genesis Rabbah gives you a way out. When Ham goes in to see his father, what he sees when he looks upon his father's nakedness is his mangled genitalia. And, and so he looks at it, and apparently he makes fun of it. He goes out to his brothers and he talks all about his dad's, you know, his inability to procreate, his his mangled maleness, which, which also fits in the story. Because when Noah wakes up and hears what his son has done to him, he lashes out of his insecurity in vengeance to say, if you're going to make fun of my ability to procreate. I will rob you of your, not necessarily your ability to procreate, but I will curse your own creation. I will curse Canaan, your son, the the son that I was supposed to have that now I can't have. If you're going to make fun of me, and so here's the whole big idea, Brent. Here's the the thing I'm trying to drive home. Not the details of the Midrash itself. Like, not that, A, the Midrash isn't for us from a Jesus perspective, It's not the same kind of authority as Scripture. It's not inspired on the same level that written Scripture would be. But B, the Midrash is not supposed to be about history. We're not wrestling with the historicity of something, what actually happened in history. The Midrash is an interpretive tool. It's helping us see things that we're not seeing. It's helping us interpret the text. It's helping us figure out how to think. So no matter which stream of Midrash you run into, and, and some Midrash is just crazy and some of it's not. And some of it's crazy and you love it and some of it is crazy and you hate it. And that's the nature of this of, of studying Midrash and trying to see what it's trying to get you to see. But no matter which stream you take, here's the big idea. The big idea of the story of Noah is it's a story about the dangers of revenge and not, in our language, not trusting the story. Whether whether Ham castrates his father, whether he makes fun of mangled genitalia, no, ma- no matter what he's, no matter what, how you're how you're interpreting the story, the point of the story, and what I'm going to argue we likely miss without the midrash. Like if I just exegete Genesis nine, like if I just go through pure exegesis, if I just grab a commentary off my, if I if I'm just trying to like exposit, if I'm just doing the things that I was taught to do as a Western Bible student, I'm not sure I exegete that story to be about revenge, the dangers of vengeance, the danger of lashing out in your insecurity. But according to the rabbinic tradition, no matter which stream you want to take, like the big idea, and there's going to be nuances and complexities and all kinds of beautiful things you can do with the Midrash that I'm not equipped to do and Brent's not equipped to do, But the big idea, teaching me how to think, is to realize, what is the story behind the story? What is this story of Noah really, truly about? It's not just about what happened in some point in history. It's about what happens inside of all of us. It's not just about how something took place. It's about why it takes place even today. That's what the story is always trying to teach us, and that's what the Midrash links us back to. This is a story about the dangers of lashing out in insecurity, lashing out, because what does this lead to? This leads to a descendant who is cursed named Canaan, which leads to what, Brent? Who does Canaan become? Not a trick question, by the way. The enemies of the people of God. Remember us wrestling first episodes of Session 2 with the Conquest? Because of how brutal and violent and disgusting the whole thing is. The Bible says all of that come all of that comes from this root human condition that lashes out in its insecurity. And when you do that, when you lash out of your insecurity, when you curse, when you utter anathemas against other human beings, when you utter curses against you you potentially lead to massive, massive, massive human destruction so it's it's just a fascinating uh, it's just fascinating I don't know what kind of time we got left Brent what what kind of other things do you see in this this story that you want to bring up? Well, so I was thinking
0: when you talked about the timeline of creating a vineyard, how long that would take so if if they come off of the ark, Noah starts planting his vineyard. meanwhile, Hom is having children. he has these four children. Four to five years to make this vineyard and and go through this whole process in the meantime, Hom has four kids, and then Noah curses him, and apparently he has no other kids after that, oh sure, yeah, so is that is that hom like not being able to have more kids is that is that hom choosing to like well if if my line is cursed, then i don't wanna I don't wanna increase my curse by having more children. Great question. So just something to think about there. Obviously, I have nothing to point out there. Um, What was the other thing? Oh, my wife pointed out something um, in Genesis, in the story of the flood. So you have, at the beginning of the story, you have God speaking to Noah, and he says, you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives. Noah, sons... Wife, their wives. Okay. Right. And so then it goes on to say uh, a couple of different times Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He said it says that twice uh-huh. uh, at the end of chapter six and, and uh, in seven. And so then it, at, within seven, it says, uh, you know, on that day, Noah and his sons, together with his wife and the wives of his sons, enter the ark. So that's exactly as it was. Same order. Okay. Then at the end, when When everything, when the earth has dried out, it says, God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. So the order is different. But then after that, after God is done speaking, it says, Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives back to the original order. So my wife pointed this out and I, there's a couple of interesting things that you can pull out from that um so a couple of things to think about like is Noah saying yeah god i trusted you in the beginning but now that this flood things over i've got it i'm gonna do it my way or is he just not listening to god anymore or i don't there's there's a few different ways you could take that but then i noticed um from looking at that that the the women are never mentioned again if you look at um Right after they come out, it says, Noah built an altar to the Lord. And then in chapter nine, it says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, blah, blah, blah. And then again, uh, later in chapter nine, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant, blah, blah, blah. There's no mention of the women at all after they come out. So I thought maybe this was like the, uh... Oh, don't get into this. Spoiler alert. Ooh, we haven't ooh. talked about this one yet. Okay. Okay. <laughs>
1: Got to stop you right there. I got to do that to you once. You're always doing that to me. I got to do that to you. That's a future episode. What? Um, didn't we talk about this in session one though? Uh huh. We didn't. I learned about that after we recorded the podcast. Oh no. Yeah. 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 Oh
0: uh, yeah. That. Oh, we just wet everybody's appetite for future episodes. Woo! Oh man. Well, I'm not sure where I'm going to cut into that, but
1: <laughs> uh no, no, no. It's great. We're going to leave it all here. But I will say this, Brent, to, all, to what you're just sharing. Um. It's a wonderful observation. I've never run into anything necessarily about that. But to me, it does it does bring to mind, as I was looking at all the midrash surrounding Noah after we pulled the plug on that last episode, there's a very prominent discussion about the wives in this story. The fact that they're mentioned but never named – is a big sticking point for rabbinic conversation and commentary because you wouldn't expect them to be named. Like what you encounter after the ark, like you mentioned the wives aren't mentioned anymore. It's just Noah and his sons, Noah and his sons, Noah and his sons with him. Like that's what you would expect. That's normal. Um, You you never mention the wives. You never bring up the wives. In fact, the rabbis keep pointing out like when you read the Noah story, You don't have to mention the wives at all. They don't need to be mentioned. That's not to be patriarchal, or I'm not trying to promote some... I'm just saying in that there must be a reason the rabbis say. They actually aren't being patriarchal. They're being the exact opposite. They must be playing a very critical part in the flood narrative. Now, for the rabbis, they go on to say, we know who Noah's wife is. Noah's wife has to be Na'amah. Now, Na'amah is a seventh generation descendant from Cain. She's... Uh, the brother of Tubal-Cain, if I remember correctly, who is the creator of tools. Uh, she comes from Genesis chapter 4 is her mention. And the rabbis note, noted in that genealogy, just like Yiska, here's this woman who's named in the genealogy. There has to be a reason that we're given her name. You don't mention a woman in a genealogy for no reason, like there's a reason we're told who she is, but there's no reason in the genealogy given for her mention. So the rabbis say, but yet later in the flood, I'm told all about Noah's wife, and I keep mentioning his wife, his wife, his wife, but she's never named. And they said, ah, it has to be Nama. You could say that's crazy, but that's how they interpreted it. Um, it and and, and and there's all kinds of beautiful things. Like there's a whole midrash about Noah creating the plow, which is actually where God decides to like, (laughs) essentially give up on this whole endeavor um, and and actually bring about the flood in that Midrashic interpretation because um, Noah's father, he names Noah and says he's going to provide us comfort from the toil of our hands. And so the Midrash, he marries Naama, her brother is the creator of tools. Noah creates the plow to give... Like, humanity's going to find comfort in work rather than finding comfort in God. Instead of trusting the story, they're going to trust, and that's when God goes, okay, that's it. We're going to have to wipe this whole thing out. That's not going to work. So the other interesting thing about Na'ama is that the Midrash does two things with her name. Her name can either mean, like, lovely, and one Midrash says, she is the most beautiful woman in all of creation. So much, in fact, that she was the one that enticed the angelic beings, the nephilim, to have relations with daughters of men. Not that she. Now, one midrash makes her the like the seducer, and her her name can also mean like uh like singer. It, it can imply music, like a musician, and so they say she beat the drums of idolatry and sexual immorality. Um, another midrash, though, uh, says that she was actually. The word can can imply beauty, uprightness, lovely, in a sense of righteousness. And so one Midrash says that she was righteous as Noah's wife. And that I wonder, this is complete speculation, complete speculation, asterisk. I wonder if God isn't implying in this story, like you, your wife has been your greatest partner through this whole endeavor. You need to come out with her, not your son's she's the one that can help save and redeem this story. And and does he decide to come out with his sons in the way he's always done? It? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not saying I found that in Midrush. I'm just saying when I when I think of all the things Midrush is teaching me, I wonder if there's not some insinuation going on there. Who knows? Who knows? Uh you can find that uh I think we can link to an Aleph-Beta thing about Noah and the plow if you want to know more about Noah and the plow. Uh Brent's going to link that in the show notes. Uh, you can also find it in, in Foreman's, uh, one of his newest books, um, Genesis, A Parsha Companion. It was excellent. It was so good. I recently finished it. So, 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 so good. Um, talks about Noah and the plow in there as well. So uh, some additional resources for you. The Midrash is fun. My point is not like that we're experts in the Midrash or here's all the conclusive resolution. My point in talking about the Midrash is that the Midrash teaches me, again, how to think. It teaches me how to search the text for problems, not resolve problems. It teaches me how to see things that are out of place and how to how to figure out how they're interlinked and how they are answering other questions that are in the text, which just lead to more questions, but also leads to a bigger, healthier understanding that provokes me to change which is what the biblical text is
0: always trying to do. It's always get us to, going to get us to be different. One other thought I had. Um, in episode seven, we talked about how the preface, Genesis 1 through 11, is a chiasm. And so this story of Noah and this curse on Canaan um, would parallel back to the Adam and Eve story of Genesis 2 and 3. And uh, I was listening to a Bible project podcast episode uh titled what's so bad about babel and they mentioned um a a parallel here they didn't actually mention the the parallel of the entire story but they did mention this one specific element that ham is acting like the snake taking advantage of the nakedness and then uh, shame and yapheth are acting like god covering the nakedness
1: that's beautiful i thought yeah
0: was a, a, a nice little um explicit tie between those two stories that that would go along with what we talked about in episode seven yeah it's great marty i think you had a couple of other resources that you wanted to reference as well yeah let's say you
1: want to study more about naama uh we've talked about the jewish women's archive before uh jwa.org it's just a great source especially if you're studying uh, female characters uh if you want to look for midrash usually they'll have like a you know sarah and the agadah Uh, that's a good, that'll always be a good Midrash article. Um, we we could talk about Agadah sometime, not now, but, um, but, uh, and the Agadah. First of all, it'll give you just a profile of who the biblical character is and the quick facts about who they are, but then it'll also often give you links to like, what does the Midrash teach about this character? Who are they? Um, all those kind of things. Obviously, if you know where you're going, like, okay, Marty said that was in Genesis Rabbah. And you want to go find that in Genesis Rabbah? Use Safaria.org. It's a great resource that can get you linked up to all kinds of stuff. Um, Brent's also going to put, uh, I think we, we've been linking this, but we're just going to kind of keep linking it if it's helpful for people. Uh, there's a YouTube video that I made on Midrash just as kind of like a primer um, to be helpful for folks that have questions. But the other thing is Google. But I, I, you know, I've learned over the last few years that Google isn't what I thought it was. Like, I didn't realize how all these algorithms work to affect search results. I thought Google was static, and that when you Googled something, everybody got the same answers. <laughs> Silly me. Come to figure out that's not how it works, huh, Brent? Nope. <laughs> we do not have <laughs> so, time to
0: get into that. But yes, no, we
1: don't. But I would recommend watching uh, a documentary. Totally uh, left field recommendation here. But if you get a chance to watch the Social Dilemma on Netflix. Um, It talks kind of like how those algorithms work. So uh, oftentimes I'll get an email from some of you and you'll say, Marty, I've tried to find something on this and I just don't find it. And I go to Google and I'm shaking my head and I Google whatever, Midrash and Noah, and it's like the first result that comes up. And I'm like, come on, guys, it's the first thing that happens when you Google it. And people write back and they're like, not when I Google it. And now I, I have a better understanding for why. My Google search engine, my search engines that I use are fine tuned to give me the results I'm looking for. And they're not fine-tuned yet to give you the results you're looking for. I think they – one of the nice things about these algorithms is they do correct themselves over time and they actually start giving you uh, what you do want to find. So there's all kinds of problem with that. Watch the social dilemma to find out the problems with those things and uh, and wrestle with that. Um, don't totally freak out, but wrestle with it. And um, and that's just helpful to know why my Google is working different than your Google.
0: I think that's all I got, Brent. Sounds good to me. I think I – think... <laughs> Oh man, these, uh, I, I don't know what's going on, but our show notes have increased substantially uh, in session six. We're, we're like we are just dumping resources on people. So well,
1: that I'll tell you why that is. It's because when I start getting into waters that I am less competent in, that I'm less authoritative, I'm less of an expert, I'm still learning. I am going to want to function as a tour guide. Like I'm going to try to like be the middleman, read this, watch this, look at this. You make your own conclusions like that. I I think you will see a ton more of that in session six simply because that that's the nature of this podcast and who we are. We are not the experts. We are not the experts. Um, We are simply uh, people teaching us what to look for and where you can find it and connecting people to the goods but we we ourselves are not the goods like you can't you can't quote us for a paper um it, we don't work that way but we can hopefully point you towards people you can
0: and that's that's the reason we're here absolutely we're the wikipedia of podcasts <laughs> only only not nearly as vetted by our peers but oh boy you got it yeah the thing about wikipedia is it's a tertiary source like any encyclopedia is you don't you don't cite that as your source use that to lead you to the primary or maybe the secondary sources so you got it that's what we're doing here in session six i guess you got it all right well if you have any other questions you can get a hold of marty on twitter at marty solomon i'm at eibcb and everything else you need to know is at bama so thanks for joining us on the bama podcast we'll talk to you again soon